Good evening, everyone. I guess I can begin. Uh, <clears throat> it's nice to see this small group here of every people I know. For those of you who are listening to the recorded version, my name is Douglas Floyd. I'm one of the teachers at Ancient Dragons and Gate, and I'm the president and the temple director. Um, I'm happy to have this opportunity to talk. I'm not fond of public speaking, but these uh, Dharma talks give me a chance to really focus on some issue. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty and thus relieved all suffering. Shariputra form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself forms sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness are also like this Shariputra. All dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. Therefore, given emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sights, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight, no realm of mind, consciousness. There is neither ignorance nor extinction of ignorance, neither old age and death nor extinction of old age and death. No suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no knowledge, and no attainment, with nothing to attain a bodhisattva, relies on prasyavaramita, and thus the mind is without hindrance, without hindrance, there is no fear, far beyond and all inverted views one realizes nirvana all Buddhas of past, present, and future rely on Prajnaparamita, and thereby attain unsurpassed, complete, perfect, enlightenment. Therefore know the Prajnaparamita as the great miraculous mantra, the great bright mantra, the supreme mantra, the incomparable 
mantra which removes all suffering and is true, not false. Therefore we proclaim the Pradyapadamita mantra, the mantra that says gate, gate, para gate, parasam gate, bodhisvaha. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, Great Teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, Great Teacher Mahaprajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehe Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The great, perf- the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. <coughs> to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom. Maha Over to you, Douglas. Good evening, everyone. I guess I can begin. Uh, <clears throat> it's nice to see this small group here of every people I know. For those of you who are listening to the recorded version, my name is Douglas Floyd. I'm one of the teachers at Ancient Dragons and Gate, and I'm the president and the temple director. Um, I'm happy to have this opportunity to talk. I'm not fond of public speaking, but these uh, Dharma talks give me a chance to really focus on some issue. I wanted to follow on uh, a pattern of Dharma talks lately where I've been selecting, uh, talking about koans that appear in multiple uh, koan collections, sometimes in all three of the most important ones, the Gateless Barrier, the Blue Cliff Record, and the Book of Serenity. This one tonight I've chosen uh, from the Book of Serenity and um, the Blue Cliff Record. It's called Wambo's Slurpers of Dregs. It begins, Wambo said to the assembly, you people are all slurpers of dregs. If you go on traveling around like this, where will you have today? Do you know that in all of China, there are no teachers of Chan? At that point, a monk came forward and said, well, what about those who guide followers and lead groups in various various places? And Wanbo said, I don't say there's no Chan, just that there are no teachers of Chan. And there's a longer version of the koan that uh, describes what happened immediately before this. Um, Wanbo enters the Dharma hall where he's supposed to give a Dharma talk and all the monks from the monastery have assembled and he tries to drive them out uh, with waving his staff around and pushing them toward the doors, but they won't go. So he says, what are you people looking for? 
and he chased them around as much as he could. And when they would not leave, then he said, you people are all slurpers of dregs. So to help you set your bearings, some background is that one bull lived from about 770 to 850 CE. And he was one of the more flamboyant teachers of the golden age of Zen in the Tang Dynasty. And also to help you get some bearings, the lineage goes in the Tang Dynasty, uh, uh, Mazu, Baijan, Wangbo, and then to Wangbo's student, Linji. Linji is pronounced Rinzai in Japanese, and he founded the branch of Zen that is now the Rinzai School of Zen in Japan. And there is a commonality among all of these teachers and their tendency to respond to questions with shouts or blows or silence. All of them did that. Um, one bull, in spite of the fact that, the, that we think of the Tang Dynasty as the golden age of Zen, toward the end of Wang Bo's life, there was a great persecution of Buddhism. Um, Emperor Wuzang ordered that all of the 4,500 or so monasteries and 40,000 hermitages and maybe 250,000 monks and nuns all be driven out. So the monasteries and, tem and temples and hermitages were closed and the monks and nuns were required to learn, return to lay life, which meant that the property of the great monasteries was available for the, uh, for the imperial coffers. Uh, the monks and nuns had to pay taxes. It's all very good because uh, the imperial bureaucracy was expensive and the armies were expensive. And also this was a way to purify China of uh, defiling foreign influences. So the same sort of treatment was extended to Zoroastrianism and to Nestorian Christianity. Although obviously Buddhism was the great target. It had the greatest presence. So Wangbo himself was a pretty intimidating figure, even if he wasn't waving a staff around. He was about seven feet tall and extremely ugly. And he had a big knot on his forehead, in the middle of his forehead from touching the ground when he performed so many prostrations. And writers about Wangbo sometimes refer to it as his pearl. So this huge monk shouting, punching, pushing with his staff could be pretty, pretty imposing. And when um, Wangbo first met Baijang, his transmission teacher, Baijang looked at this huge monk and he said, magnificent, imposing. Where do you come from? And Wangbo said, um, magnificent and imposing. I've come from the mountains. And Baijan said, well, what have you come for? And Wangbo said, nothing other than this. Just this. Which is sort of a, a theme of Wangbo's, of non-seeking. He didn't come to get something. He didn't. He wasn't seeking anything. He wasn't striving for anything. He wasn't practicing so that something would happen. There aren't a lot of koans about Wangbo the way there are about some of the other very famous teachers. But there are two collections of sermons and Dharma dialogues with monks that were collected and compiled by uh, Peishu, who was a chancellor of various provinces at different times uh, of his life. And he, um, at one point, worked directly for um, Emperor Wuzong, the uh, person who wanted to close all of the monasteries. And um, Peishu was a student of Wangbo's. He's a very religious layman, and he would normally sign official documents with his his Dharma name, uh, Gongmei, which 
was controversial. Uh, the Confucians hated it, and the Buddhists thought it was great. Um, but at any rate, uh, Peshu wrote, uh, compiled two collections of one was uh, sermons and his dialogues, and he shared them with Wanbo so that Wanbo could correct them or add them, add to them. So what we have today is an approved, uh, is two approved books by the Atang dynasty uh, Zen teacher, one of the great ones. And it's probably the most uh, text we have by or about approved text by any uh, Tang dynasty Zen master that, that we have. It's been, the two books have been translated in one volume by John Blofeld as um, Wangbo on the, uh, the transmission of mind. And if you crawl around the internet a little bit, you can find websites where other people have done some other translations as well. And I, I recommend the book very much. I'll just show you my version, which is as much post-it notes as pages. It, it really is a wonderful book. Um, so in spite of the fact that Wangbo did not give long sermons and did not give uh, many theoretical talks, um, the opening segment of one of the books by uh, Peishu is, uh, is a paragraph that sets up Wangbo's position and emphasizes themes that appear in all of his talks and, and uh, Dharma discussions. And I'll put that up on the screen for sharing. Um, it just reads, all the Buddhas and all sentient beings are nothing but the one mind, which is a term you know, from the awakening of faith that Wangbo uses as an alternative sometimes for Buddha, Buddha nature. Uh, nothing but the one mind, besides which nothing exists. This mind, which is without beginning, is unborn and indestructible. It does not belong to the categories of things which exist or do not exist, nor can it be thought of in terms of new or old. It is neither long nor short, big nor small, for it transcends all limits, measure, names, traces, and comparisons. It is that which you see before you. Begin to reason about it, and you at once fall into error. It is like the boundless void which cannot be fathomed or measured the one mind alone is the Buddha, and there is no distinction between the Buddha and sentient beings, but that sentient beings are attached to forms and so seek externally for Buddha. By their very seeking, they lose it, for that is using the Buddha to seek for the Buddha and using mind to grasp mind. Even though they do their utmost for a full eon, they will not be able to attain it. They do not know that if they put a stop to conceptual thought, and forget their anxiety, the Buddha will appear before them. For this mind is the Buddha, and the Buddha is all living things. So this paragraph sets up the theme, as I said, that appears through almost all of Wanbo's short Dharma talks and his exchanges with his students the theme that the world is all-encompassing and formless, and that the things and forms we perceive in the world, believe we perceive in the world, are actually uh, the products of uh, conceptual thinking and desire, which create a framework that we impose upon one world, uh, the world, and then believe that we have perceived the things that we've actually created with our own thoughts and desires, expectations, emotions, uh, distinctions, comparisons, um, and so on. So Buddha or one mind is beyond 
of conceptual thinking. And part of the conceptual thinking is, is uh, seeking or striving, attempting to practice in order to attain something different from what is right here in this life, in this very moment. So Wangbo's teaching in talk after talk and dialogue after dialogue is that um, striving and study and learning and seeking to attain some sort of yogic perception of oneness or some reality, unifying reality behind what appears right before us is delusion. It's just, uh, it's impossible to realize one mind in that way. We're just carrying out and continuing the conceptual thinking, and the delusion that we're trying to overcome. So Wangbo continually says, um, develop a mind that attaches to nothing. Let go of all thinking. And do not bother with studying and learning, studying scriptures and learning doctrines because they're unnecessary or even harmful because they involve us in conceptual thinking and prevent us from realizing one mind. Um, so you can see this in some, uh, some of, not only in this koan, but in some others. And in some of the other stories of Wangbo. So um, at one point, Peishu, who had studied with Wangbo for a very long time, had written a book which set out his understanding of Zen and Buddhism, and he brought it to Wangbo and he presented it to him. And Wangbo looked at it sitting on the table and pushed it to one side and sat there without talking for a while and then said, Do you understand? The patient did not. Um, another famous story is about the awakening of Linji, Wangbo's most famous student, where Linji had um, had practiced at Wangbo's monastery for three years without ever having met Wangbo. Never had practiced the discussion. Never had Doksan. And the head monk Mujo thought that Linji was a very promising student. So he said, why don't you go visit Wangbo and ask him what is the essence of Buddhism? So Linji went and appeared in Wangbo's room and asked, what is the essence of Buddhism? And Wangbo punched him and threw him out of the room. So a couple of days later, Linji comes back, asks again, what is the essence of Buddhism? And Wangbo punches him and throws him out of the room. And he does that one more time. Uh, punches him, he leaves the room. And um, so Linji gives up. And uh, he goes to see, uh, goes to visit the monastery of Dayu, another great Zen master. And uh, Dayu asked him, where are you coming from? And he says, I'm coming from Wangbo. He says, well, what's Wangbo taught you? And he says, well, each time I've asked him, what is the essence of Buddhism? He just hit me and threw me out of the room. I mean, is there some fault here? And Dayu said, um, yeah, yeah. He's exercised the greatest grandmotherly kindness for you. And at that, uh, Lin Chi woke up and went back to complete his studies with Wangbo. Um, and I'm sure you remember the story of Baijang and the fox, where Wangbo was still studying with Baijang, where Baijang sees a strange monk in the, in the Dharma Hall uh, one day, and he calls the monk up and says, who are you? And the monk says, I'm not a human being. And it turns out that the monk is really a fox spirit who many, many years in the past had been the guiding teacher at this monastery. And someone had asked him, is a greatly cultivated monk subject 
to cause and effect. And the monk said no. And as a result of that, uh, he was reborn as a fox spirit 500 times. And so he's come to uh, to Baijang um, to say, well, what happened? And, and can you liberate me? And Baijang uh, says, well, you ask me. And so the monk asks Baijang, well, is the greatly cultivated man subject to the law of cause and effect? Is it subject to karma? And Baijang says, the, the greatly cultivated person is intimate with, is not separate from, is the law of cause and effect, which caused an awakening. And the monk went away, died. Uh, Baijong takes the monks out. They find the fox's body and they have a funeral for it. And Baijong later is explaining to some of the senior monks what the story was, what happened here. And Wanbo says, well, wait. What what if the monk could give he said that the cultivated man was not subject to the law of cause and effect? What if he'd given the other answer? And Baijong said, Come here. And Wanbo advanced, and Baijong started to wind up to punch him, and Wanbo slapped him across the face. And Baijong approved of the answer and started clapping his hands. And he said, Well, I knew that the redhead, that the barbarian. Western barbarian had a red beard, but now I see the Western red-haired, red-bearded barbarian in front of me. So the story, there are multiple versions of what this is about, but I think it's very much a matter of uh, Wanbo's insistence that either answer, being being uh, attached to either conceptual answer, that the cultivated monk is subject to law and cause and effect, or isn't subject to the law and cause and effect, is delusion, and that by slapping and punching, he takes the other person out, shakes him up, takes him out of his head, and brings him back to the re- the immediate experience of being alive in this moment. So, let's go back to the to the koan for this evening. That's the one where Wambo says, right. You people are all slurpers of dregs. If you go on traveling around like this, where will you have today? That you know that all of China, there are no teachers of Chan. At that point, a monk came forward and said, well, what about those who guide followers and lead groups in various places? And Wangbo said, I don't say there's no Chan, just that there are no teachers of Chan. So... They're all slippers of dregs. You know, the dregs are the waste products left behind in brewing beer or fermenting wine. It's a beer. It's the grain husks and the dead yeast and the particulates that have fallen to the bottom of the vat when the beer is drained off. So people who are gobbling the dregs and are, and are content with it, are people who are really eating garbage. They're eating the waste when they should be drinking the pure beer. And this, this gobblers of dregs was a, a phrase that was used in the Tang Dynasty, and not just in Zen, but in Taoist circles as well, to refer to people who studied texts, but with the words of, of the um, great masters in the past that the words were just the dregs, that they did not capture the pure beer that the um, Taoist immortals and the Buddhist ancestors were attempting to convey. So, so the dregs, um, Mangbo is is calling these monks gobblers of dregs because they've come to the Dharma Hall and they're making these these journeys from monastery to monastery, from teacher to teacher, looking for some explanation, some teaching, some description, some technique that's going to help them understand Buddha nature, the one mind, or have some sort of 
yogic experience, some breakthrough experience of, of oneness, some liberating experience of some sort. So Wanbo is saying they're, they're confused about practice in two ways. One is that, and he says this over and over in his speeches, you know, it's a waste of time to spend your time studying, studying the, uh, the sutras and trying to learn doctrine. It's exactly the, the problem of conceptual thinking that's blocking you from realizing one mind and Buddha nature. It's your striving to attain something new, which is creating this duality of me and my effort, me and some imagined result of, of awakening or awareness that is preventing you from simply being here and being awake in this moment, which is one mind. So he's, Wangbo says over and over again, you must let go of your thinking, your conceptual mind, see, seize any seeking and striving let, so that you no longer are attaching to or resting on or abiding in conceptual thinking. The, the Chinese term has all of those all of those translations. So it's very much like what uh, Mr. Ehe Dogen would say, right? Very much the same approach. That we're not practicing in order to attain some result, some awakening, some understanding. Our practice, our zazen is not learning meditation. It's not something you do so that it will result in uh, understanding something. So he says, you know, let go of your thinking. Take the backward step that shines the light within. Let go of thinking, desires, judgments, expectations, techniques. As soon as you take that backward step, you, real, you see your original face before your parents were born. And that, that realization, just the stepping back, taking the backward step, is the fulfillment of practice real, realization. It is what permits us to not see Buddha mind, uh, Buddha nature, see the one mind. Buddha nature and one mind aren't something that we perceive or don't perceive. It's something we are, something we express. And we fulfill it in our lives when we are not caught up in, in our thinking mind and striving to attain something. So that being the case, I think we can understand what what I was talking about when he says, don't you know there are no teachers of Zen? Zen is not something that can be taught or conveyed. It's something that can be learned and life can be experienced and expressed. But it's something we have to do for ourselves. So... Wangbo doesn't say there is no Zen, only that there are no teachers of Zen. So there's plenty of Zen. We are surrounded by, we are immersed in, we are the one mind and Buddha nature. But realizing that is not something that can be taught. The fundamental reality of the world is always here. And that awareness is always here. The awareness of being alive in this world in, in a non-dual way is behind, underneath our conceptual thinking and our striving all the time. The question is, are you going to let go of that thinking and that striving and seeking to realize it? 
And it's something that we do now, as he says, if Rambo says, if you go keep going, coming here over and over and over again to hear Dharma talks, or travel from monastery to monastery, teacher to teacher, buying book after Dharma book after Dharma book after Dharma book, so that at some point there'll be an explanation that causes you to go, aha, you will never have today. Right here, right now, simply. Let go of your thinking and be alive. That is, that being alive is the experience and the expression of one mind and Buddha nature. So I guess notwithstanding that, I have the same question as the monk who came up to Wangbo in the Dharma Hall and said, well, okay, but there are people out there who are running monasteries and giving Dharma talks and so on, who are they? We definitely have Zen teachers. And I guess you have to ask yourself, what good is a Zen teacher? Um, And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I mean, obviously, Zen teachers in this country do a lot of things, like they, they they can conduct ceremonies, and they can teach forms, Sendo forms, and they can teach people what to do during ceremonies and they can give Dharma talks and they can teach, uh, they can teach about scriptures and koans and so on. But all of that is some of the things that actually can be done and are done by people who are Zen teachers. Um, so the only thing I can, the only things I can really think of that a Zen teacher can do is that other people can't do. Or maybe they can do it. You know, just being designated as a Zen teacher doesn't mean you're different from other people. The Zen teacher is someone who can meet with you and practice with you. Um, someone who more often than not has practiced longer than you has experienced and continues to experience the same things because we have to understand that our deluded mind, our conceptual thinking, our striving are with us always. They don't go away. The small mind is with us all the time. All perception involves conceptual thinking. I see that. I think about that. And when we get absorbed in that thinking, immersed in that thinking, we get caught up in it, then just the perception of a form becomes a perception of this fixed, separate, enduring, independent thing, which is the basis in particular of the dichotomy, the separation between self and the world that's the most fundamental problem that Buddhism attempts to address. So I think that the Zen teacher can certainly make that point and practice with someone and talk about practice, both both people's practice, and really provide coaching. Um, Zen practice can be very frustrating. And I think perhaps the Zen teacher's most fundamental task is to provide encouragement. Nothing will go wrong as long as you keep practicing. So encouraging you to exercise patience and perseverance um, is probably the most important task that a Zen teacher can have. Beyond that, I think that a Zen teacher spent a lot of time being deluded and has a certain amount of sensitivity, as anyone who's done this for very long, to when we are grasping an idea or an experience, whether we're grasping for it or clinging to it. Um, I want this, I want this, I want this, I'm practicing so that this will happen. I had this experience, uh, but I can't get it back. Or I had this experience, I must be enlightened, something like that. 
any if if you've been through that and continue to sit, that will go away for a while and it will come back. But maybe you waste a little less time if you're meeting with a teacher to talk about that. Just to share the practice and have a conversation that does not really have an agenda where neither side, a teacher has nothing to prove in a practice discussion or in Tokusan. Um, so I think the aim of the a Zen teacher and the function of, of a Zen teacher is to make sure that students simply keep sitting and keep the Zafu warm. That's the point. So thank you very much. Please let me know if you have any questions or comments. We'll see what comes out of this. Do you understand? <laughs> Jason, do you have a question? Um, yeah, I'll take a take a whack at it. Um, so, if Wangbo was teaching this uh, right now sitting in your seat, which I suppose he probably is as well. Um, how would he push us out of the Zoom Zendo? Uh, I think he would exercise his right to uh, be quiet and not speak. But he did speak a lot. There are, after all, two books of Dharma talks and dialogues. Um, I think that that he would do the same thing he does in in the books, which is not engage really in theoret theoretical discussions. There's no discussion really. There, there are a couple of points where it's, and it's clear that he has studied the Diamond Sutra and the Lotus Sutra and the Vimalakirti Sutra and others that I probably don't recognize. But there are quotes to those or references to those. But over and over again, he's encouraging people to just let go and hold on to nothing. Don't hold on to thought. Let it come and let it go. Let it come and go. Don't strive to achieve something in your practice. Don't seek some different experience. Just be alive in the experience of this moment. Uh, even if your mind is going crazy and you're deluded, you're feeling deluded, you're upset. All of that is this moment that all of that is the one mind sit with it without attempting to change it without trying to explain it or describe it to yourself or to change it in any way i think that's what he would do that over and over again it's this page on every almost every page certainly on every other page is you have to let go of your grasping to conceptual thought and striving. I do have another question, I guess. Yeah, good. No one else. Uh, this, this is all about concept, uh, so I'm glad Wang Po is out of the room now. Um, so one of the fascinating things to me is the relationship that a student has with the teacher and the importance of uh, a student having a teacher and showing up to that teacher in an open and honest way. But then again, also the fact that uh, a teacher can't teach Zen. Um, why is it for nearly at least as much as I know throughout the whole history of Zen, 
Intel either it was Koto uh, Sawaki or Ushiyama, uh, Ushiyama uh, I'm mispronouncing his name, um, that there was always an emphasis on having a teacher. They're some of the first people or the only people that I know that have retreats where there's no dokusan, no daisan. There's just simple sitting. There's not even a teisho from what I hear uh, or understand about some of those um, retreats. It seems like more retreats ought to be that way. So I'm wondering, because you have such a vast knowledge of the history of Zen context, why it took uh, 700 to 1960s to kind of make that development or change. I think Uchiyama would speak to students. He just had no formal requirement during sessions that you come to Dokusan. I think it's a, it's, I think the answer is different at different times. Uh, in Rinzai Zen, for example, right, the practice involves um, coming up with a response to a koan and presenting your response, demonstrating your response, your understanding of the koan to a teacher. Um, and the teacher says yes or no, or go work on that some more. Um, that's a little that's a little different, um, but they may have other guidance as well. For in Soto Zen, uh, on the whole, in Japanese Soto Zen, there isn't a quite. Uh, there's not a requirement for regular daily or even weekly practice discussion with a teacher. The teacher's available if a student wants to speak and may say, summon that student to have a discussion. And I think that it's important because when we are engaged in striving and in conceptual thought, um, we're not really aware of it. We've sort of become immersed in it. It's the way that we've identified with it and it's the way we're looking at the world until there, it stops. There's an interruption and it is. And then you, hey, I've been lost in thought. I've been thinking, I've been daydreaming. I've been focused on desire, something like that. I think that um, the formality of a student-teacher meeting uh, sort of encourages that to happen, that opening to happen a little bit. And the teacher uh, can provide some perspective, maybe that a student is, it's just not available to the student because a student is caught up in assumptions and attitudes about the practice. Um, not I don't think that you're coming in to be criticized. It's to be coached, to have things pointed out, and for you to be encouraged to to go back and sit some more. Amina. I think it's in um, Shagum Trungpa Rinpoche's Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, this thing of like the teacher should be like a sharp knife or... I don't know if I'm getting that right, but that somehow, you know, something about the teacher should be like a sharp knife. And um, I guess I wondered what you thought of that. And if there's something, if there, if, if that has something to do with like, why, if, like you come in to talk to your teacher and you ask about the essence of Zen, you might get punched and why that's actually grandmotherly love. <laughs> I, I think you have to, times were different. I mean, I've I've been doing this for a while, and I've never been punched by a teacher. Um, uh, cultures are different. I think that that uh, the shouting and the striking were all aimed at at uh, surprise to to take someone out of that being immersed in thought, in thinking, and and desire. Um, 
and you know, I mean, the to talk about the teacher being like a sharp knife is like comparing the the teacher to um, Manjushri with his sword cutting through, you know, the embodiment of prajna cutting through delusion, cutting through deluded conceptual thinking. You know, those kinds of uh, images, I guess, can also encourage abuse, <laughs> everything, you know. Trumpo Rinpoche certainly would punch students. Um, and be verbally abusive and things like that. I don't know that that was always the expression of awakened mind uh, instead of a hangover. I definitely don't want to be punched by a teacher, um, but somehow when I read that line, there was something in it that resonated for me, or I thought might be good, you know, that a teacher should be yeah. You know, or the well, and I, I think that that's the idea that a teacher saying, have you considered that you're really caught up here imagining what it's going to be like to be enlightened or you're sitting here actually thinking a lot about having a calm, undisturbed mind and you're sitting here thinking a lot about being awake and present. And the only thing that's keeping you from doing that is the fact that you're thinking about being present. Um, that sort of perspective, I think, is the knife that helps to cut through delusion and the conceptual thinking. Um, yeah, because I, I really, I, I think that when we are caught up in, in it, we just don't, we don't see it. But we do, we do wake up over and over again and say, I've been thinking about this. I've been completely lost in thought. I am okay. I'm just prepared to sit here. Just be here and do nothing. Yeah. Nilsan. Yes, thank you, Douglas. Um, your talks are always really interesting. I, I wonder, um, I may have to ask you about sources sometimes because you um, you always have a lot of information on, on these folks that I think is really helpful. Um, but my question uh, about koans, um, dregs or beer? <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, the koan is dregs. You have to leave the koan behind. Um, I think the koan can help, you know, I, I haven't done enough uh, koan study to realize, to really speak in an informed way. But my experience with koans was never that somehow the koan woke me up or something. It was a matter of, um, from the experience of just sitting and dropping the conceptual thinking um, and settling into that, a koan would make sense. So that a koan really didn't wake me up. I, 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 other people's experience must be different based on what they say, but I've never found that it somehow a koan woke me up. It was more of, oh, okay, yeah, I understand. And that's right. I, that's right. I agree with that. I understand that. So I'm sort of not off track. If that makes sense to me, I'm not off track. But it has to be left behind. I mean, you can't walk around saying, well, this is new, that's new, that's new, right? Thank you. I mean, it's a tough question. I, I wouldn't, No, I, you know, I ask I, myself all we'll the have time. To, we'll have to invite uh, one of the Rinzai teachers or some on teachers from around Chicago to talk to us sometime and can give us an opinion about whether koans are dregs or beer. Yeah, no, they'll be all, oh, this is good, and, you know. Yeah. Um, certainly sitting and thinking and thinking and thinking about a koan is, is dregs. 
trying to analyze a koan and, and explain a koan, his dregs. Thank you. Thank you. Ed. Hey, thanks, Douglas. That was great. You know, I Father Corcoran did throw a Bible at me once, and he had a hell of an arm. <laughs> and it hit me really hard, and it took me a year. I thought I used to know algebra, and then it took me a full year to recover the lost knowledge from the um, undiagnosed concussion from that Bible. So it's not just Zen monks that throw books and hit people. But, you know, I, I like the idea of the teacher, the, the tension between the teacher and the conceptualization of something, because, of course, like most of us, we've all or I've had a lot of teachers over the years. And, and often I view them as authority figures with an authority concept. And what I learned primarily from the teaching is to develop my own authority concepts. because The conceptualization is maybe a kind of a, a form of authority, authority or an authoritative, in a, an effort to authority. Whereas the teachers, my greatest teachers, it's just a sharing of mind, that one mind idea that you brought up. So to be with the teacher and be of their mind, there's a kind of a transference that does occur of some variety, if not a sharing of a notion of author, authoritative knowledge. So thank you for your discussion and how it's centered on that, 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 uh, that difference. Uh, I think it's, I think Douglas-san can be, you know, an exercise in connection to people being the moment, sharing the moment together. Yes, Wade. That, that's kind of the, um, warm hand concept, right? And maybe that you're, that you're pointing to that the Dharma is past warm hand to warm hand. And, and so Douglas, it seems like that's what a teacher does, right? So there, there's maybe a tension there that you can't, you can't learn Zen from a teacher, but the teacher has to hand you the Dharma, right? Warm hand, warm hand. Maybe not an official, like a, you have to be handed that by, something which is a form of teaching and so that thing becomes your teacher whether or not they're you know mm -hmm. gold seal approved i don't know that's a thought yeah i don't know it, it's getting getting a little theoretical i mean I, you know i'm not sure what is passed from one hand to warm hand you know another one would be you know lighting a candle from one candle but even so that sounds like an over dramatic description of what's going on in a way the teacher just by sharing the moment being here the two people sharing the moment being here together um not being caught up in striving proving something some sort of conceptual discussion it sets sets up causes and conditions for just being here just being awake and that's that's what the experience of one mind is just living this moment without trying to impose some uh, framework of meaning on the moment. Uh, when that happens, you're, you're living within the framework. You're not meeting the world. So, um, yeah. Uh, something of just a little simpler and more down to as down to earth as possible, I think, is, is what I, the way I think of it, in my experience of meeting with teachers. Yeah, on again. I'll come back, Mike. You're still, uh, you're muted still. Sorry. Um, th this is just sort of bringing up. Um, I guess what it's essentially a, a sort of a further comment on the question that Jason was asking before about this thing. Um, um, you know, how is it that we got this Antaiji style of practice only in the 20th century where, you know, they're doing sashins without Dokusan and so on and so forth. And, and it occurs to me, I mean, when, when the question was coming up, it occurs to me that even the commentary you gave before, 
uh, at least raises the question that that might not be true in the sense that you mentioned that uh, uh, Rinzai had been with Wombo for some years before he had any Dokusan. And so, I mean, the point being that we tend to always think about somehow just our orientation is to think about what teachers do and sort of reduce that into, well, what do the teachers say? And then if you can't put the teacher together with a student where they're saying something, then you think that the teaching's not going on. But Wade also used the, the expression warm hand to warm hand. And that's a lot of where the teaching's happening. And that's, and we would presume that that was happening, uh, in those three years before Rinzai met with Wangbo. Um, uh, yeah, I just, I guess it, it, this all reduces to just sort of saying we shouldn't think about teaching as primarily a verbal activity or exclusively a verbal thing. Yeah. Well, at least, you know, monastic practice in Soto is very much a matter of follow the schedule, do one thing at a time, dignified comportment, stand this way, walk this way, do everything this way as a way of being alive here and in this moment and not getting lost in thought. Um, and people learn that by being around people who've done it for a long time and imitating them. Um, it's not something that we can do really as lay people in the world. We're not in that sort of controlled hothouse environment. But there may be some sort of equivalent, trying to keep your head up and your back straight all the time. I don't know. Mike, you had a question or a comment? Yeah. Um, the way talking about warm hand uh, made me think of... Um, I'm forgetting not only the which chat this is from, um, now you have it, preserve it well. Um, I'm also forgetting the line before it, which is probably more integral to my point. Um, the dharma of suchness is intimately transmitted from Buddhas and ancestors. Yeah, now yeah. Have it, preserve it well. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that like um, the idea of not really teaching, but just like um, – the transmission, you know, that's from warm hand, warm hand is um, pretty simple as you were talking about Douglas. It's not, you know, not to be verbal. It doesn't have to be anything. It's just there. And then you have it. And now you, you know, can kind of do whatever you want with it. I don't know. It, 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 that resonated with me. It reminded me. Mm -hmm. of Great poem. But what is transmitted? Yes, what, what did what did Tigan transmit to you? What are you what are you transmitting to me when we meet in Dogusan about the precepts? Um, good question. I you know I I, 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 I don't have anything uh, particularly fancy to say about it at the moment. I'll, I'll think about it for the next time we talk. But even to, even to ask the question imposes the requirement of a narrative response, and that is that is essentially a conceptual object, and that's where it becomes a question when you get the book thrown at you instead. <laughs> I, I think Ed is right. I probably deserve to get something thrown at for that question. It was a bad conceptual question. <laughs> we got some some documents from Taigen. <laughs> so, but he didn't get much get one of these. <laughs> yeah you don't get information exactly or know-how or technique really I was going to say the what's transmitted is the book being thrown at you that's what's transmitted <laughs> all, all 2,000 pages of the flower ornaments yeah my teacher beat me now it's your turn so well, on that note um, <laughs> Should we shut down? Uh, yeah, let's do yeah. the four bodhisattva vows. Uh, let's, let's let me let me transmit my screen to to all of you, uh, and then we'll do announcements after that. Sure, screen here. Okay. 
Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. But Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. But Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it.